Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week it's podcasters all the way down. Richard McLean Smith is the host of Unexplained Podcast, quite simply the best narrative show out there about the creepy and the mysterious. Over six seasons of highly atmospheric episodes, he's covered ghosts, demons, unsolved murders, strange disappearances, haunted computers, time travel, reincarnation, UFOs, and much, much more. And as well as being a bucket list guest for me, he also offers an alternative way to think about what horror is, and a different way to think about writing and storytelling. So just to reassure you, we are still talking books, like a lot of podcasters do with, with this kind of show, Richard wrote a spin-off, Unexplained Real-Life Supernatural Stories for Uncertain Times. It's far from a quick cash-in, though, as so many of them are. This one is actually even more representative of, of what fascinates Richard and what drives his show. And that the book delves deeper into the philosophical questions that these stories and these experiences raise about human nature and our place in the world. That all sounds pretty heavy, right? Well, no worries. Much like Richard's show, we split this conversation between the deeper, weightier philosophical matters and some more fun chat about the actual cases, including vanishing hikers, cursed boxes and possessed murderers, as well as Richard's fear of the dark and his childhood dreams about Mikhail Gorbachev. Yeah. So, off we go, to the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and other plagiarised intros. <laughs> Let's talk scared. Hi Richard, and the warmest of welcomes to Talking Scared. How are you doing today? I'm uh, pretty good. Thank you for having me. I've got a bit of a, a bunged up head uh, and I've lost the hearing in my right ear. But aside from that, uh, not, not too bad. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm looking out of my window over my local moors under a gunmetal sky. And it seems a perfect backdrop to conversations about the weirder corners of the world. But where do we find you today? Where are you based? So I am in a, a, my box room in the flat I'm living at the moment in Edinburgh with my wife and daughter. And uh, we live on a very nice street and uh, there's a very, it's a very beautiful city, but I sadly have nothing to look at but a, a white wall because we're, we're renting. So I, it's always been my dream to kind of have a, a, a sort of studio room to work in and, and cover it with like, you know, the sort of Mulder office with all the posters of strange things. Um, <laughs> yeah, I want to believe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, I suppose th- things like that, but in a more, in a more broad sense that aren't necessarily just sort of unexplained based things but sort of images and postcards and and uh various thoughts of inspiration and um i can't do that because i'm because we're renting so i can't really touch anything yeah so it's good for the focus i guess a blank wall i'm looking at a very blank gray wall above me there are some quotes from stephen king frame on the wall but beyond that it's very uninspirational which keeps the faculties <laughs> focused as you say um yeah yeah it's funny you mentioned Mulder. i'm currently re-watching the x-files from the start ah. uh which weirdly is the perfect kind of companion piece to, to your work. Yeah. And I'm thrilled to have you on the show, genuinely, because personally, I'm a massive fan of your work and and we have a lot of shared interests. I've got an obsessive, long-reaching interest into the bizarre and weird. Uh, but also, having you here 
offers the opportunity to, to talk about a different kind of writing and storytelling uh, to mm. some degree. So to most listeners, you will be known as the host and producer and basically everything of Unexplained, a podcast of stories about mysteries, folklore, and importantly, I would say, the human phenomenon of uncertainty. Yes. The show's been a rabid success. Now, I don't know how how up-to-date this is, but your website says 46 million downloads. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That, from the perspective of a little indie podcaster here, seems an unfathomable (laughs) number. Uh, And right now, you're in the middle of season six, and it's it's as great as ever. So congrats before we go any further. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. In 2018, you wrote a book, a companion to the show, um, featuring stories that hadn't been heard on the show. And that's good because it allows me to maintain this kind of literary bent to talking scared. Yes. But as I say, there are plenty of ways to tell a story. And your podcast and your book seem to me to be working in a very close tandem. At that point, I'm going to throw to you. It's enough of me wittering on, I suppose. So I'll let you start us off with more detail. Tell us a bit more about Unexplained in its various guises. So from when I started, I've I've sort of tried to, I guess, workshop a number of ways to explain exactly what it is because <laughs> people make assumptions about it before they come to it about what it is and who I am. I think ostensibly that they might think that I'm some kind of paranormal investigator or um, it's a show kind of about the strange and the paranormal, but it's much more kind of story focused. It's kind of, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a storyteller. So I, so nowadays I sort of describe it as a narrative based horror story show, but it's not always, it's not always kind of terrifying. It's not always intentionally terrifying. I suppose it sort of leans more towards the strange and the mysterious than the horror necessarily. But personally, I like it when I'm able to go to those more horrific places and, and, and make it intentionally scary, which, um, you know, thankfully a lot of the stories do lend themselves to that. I, I think when I started it, I had this grand ambition about becoming a bit more loose with, you know, what it is and the structure of it and, and how an episode might kind of unfold. And I think just through the time and the, you know, the sort of demand of trying to produce an episode every week, I haven't necessarily been able to do that, but it's it's good that you sort of mentioned the book because I think the book is probably a an example of uh if i had that time i would be able to make each episode much sort of similar to the to what you get in the book i think what i'm saying is in the book i sort of expand a bit on the stories and i find ways to kind of touch on things that inspire the story made me think about not necessarily and again this is something that i think is open to a bit of misinterpretation about the show which is that you know people might think that i'm I might you talk, start talking about something beyond the story it, in some way is trying to prove the existence of uh, a poltergeist, for example, or that reincarnation can really happen. But it's, but it's much more that I've sort of fascinated and love those stories as ideas and they then generate kind of other ideas and things that I've thought about. And I, and I like to kind of go into that. And I think that's one of the beauties of podcasting, which is that there is no kind of hard and fast rule about what, a podcast should be and as I say like I think if I had more time I'd love to be a bit more experimental in in and how I make the show but um I know this is a very long-winded answer but having said that something kind of happened as well that when I started writing it the first few episodes where I had a, I had a rough idea of what I wanted to do and I had a rough idea of you know a structure of how 
the stories were going to unfold or how, what I was going to talk about. But in the process of doing that, I kind of also created Unexplained, which is it sort of seems a bit of a strange thing to say, but um, I had always thought about it as a, as a vehicle to kind of write stuff and, and produce a show and have something out there that people could listen to. And I hadn't really thought about it becoming a thing in itself and <laughs> somewhere along the line of putting it together with the kind of the fact that I was doing my own music and, you know, I had a, I was sort of delivering the stories in a certain way and I had a, uh, I wanted to not sensationalize anything, which I'm, I'm more than aware sometimes makes me sound a little bit, um, bit too dispassionate, <laughs> but um, the idea is to kind of let the stories sit in their own space. And as the name of the show implies, not to interrogate them uh, as to whether they are true or not, and just kind of tell the story. But it then became this show unexplained. And so as much as I've been saying, be a bit more experimental and try different things, I also kind of feel there is a expectation of what each episode is going to be. I can't be too out there with it. And people know what they're going to get with it. And I think if I wanted to do something completely new, I'd probably have to do a different show. But um, I'm still always tempted to just kind of drop something in one week that's just like nothing else. Like an out there topic or a different format and structure? Just sport format and structure. And, and because I think, um, I don't know if you mind talking about this, but it's kind of more of a point about podcasting in general that when I was when I started Unexplained, maybe five years ago now, um, you know, podcasting wasn't as prevalent as it is now. It certainly wasn't that well recognized in the UK compared to America. Um, there was this sort of excitement about, you know, this kind of blank slate of a medium mm-hmm. space that hadn't really been occupied before, you know, kind of like a, almost like punk um, ideal that, you know, anybody could do it. Anybody could just get a microphone, come up with an idea and put it out into this space and, and it would exist and people would listen to it. But quite quickly, you know, you notice over the last few years that very much like a certain formulaic approach to podcasting has, you know, kind of naturally, I suppose, has taken place where you've got certain kinds of shows that tend to kind of dominate now. And I think that when you do a show that's certainly involving storytelling that um, is to do or involves people that were, you know, are real people, um, like I do on, on Unexplained, I think a lot of people have this sense that in a way it's like, a, it's a bit like a, a newspaper article or a, a, an essay. And I've always seen it as more like a, a music album. So in the way that, and I, I found this really frustrating when I was writing the book, actually, because a lot of the time when you're writing the book, well, certainly when you write a book, you can't be as blasé about uh, taking a quote from somewhere or paraphrasing something. You have to footnote it. Yeah. And I always thought, basically, you know, if I listen to a song or I watch a film, if that director or the writer or the musician has been inspired by something that's made its way into the film, you know, whether it's, you know, a kind of setting a scene that looks like a, a, a an old Renaissance painting or, you know, a musician who's using a guitar line that's actually a kind of ripoff of someone else's guitar line. The song never stops and says, oh, just so you know, that line you just heard, I got that from, you know, a David Bowie song from the 1970s. The song just plays out. And I always kind of felt like, I always sort of like the idea of, of creating a story that weaves things into it that are kind of like cultural, cultural references without having to kind of draw attention to it. Um, and I, I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I, I sort of, I, I had sort of plans to do that early on. And, and I think over time I've not, I've, I've been a bit afraid to do that because it feels like it's become a bit more of a kind of professional uh, pursuit in a way. 
Yeah, does the success of the show make you feel in any way claustrophobic? Yeah, because like I was saying, you get to it's sort of become a thing where there's now a sort of expectation of what an episode will be. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't mind that. I kind of, in a way, I kind of feel more concerned that you know people will get bored of that, and and if I don't sort of change things a little bit, um, yeah, like as I was saying before, I sort of think of it as as music. So I, I had this sort of idea of doing each season would be like a different album as it were. And, and maybe, you know, I do one season of kind of story, you know, my own stories or do one season where I'd have, you know, I'd, I'd integrate much uh, more sound effects and things like that. And, and I think just time has meant that I haven't been able to do that, but at the same time, you know, if I had done that, maybe people would have stopped listening to the show and people really like what it is. Um, or certainly the people that listen to it regularly like what it is. So I don't want to change that. I mean, firstly, I would say that I'm constantly resisting the urge to put out my own music and just use it as a way to relaunch my music career. Um, <laughs> I'm like, but but I, what I have been able to do is on occasion, like uh, normally every Halloween, um, I can do something a bit different and I put something out that's like, you know, I, a few years ago I did a, a kind of choose your own adventure. You know, I sort of swing from thinking, do you know what, this is a horror show. And that's all I care about. I want to scare people. You know, I want to uh, find ways to be more creepy and sort of terrifying. Um, and then other times I think like, maybe I need to improve the writing a bit more and focus on that. Um, and then other times I sit down in front of the microphone and I'm just like, why don't I pretend that I've been taken prisoner somewhere and I'm, and I'm recording from a basement and I need people to come and find me and, and make it a sort of treasure hunt. Because this whole sort of world of opportunity is is open to you. You can do literally whatever you want, but then at the same time you can't because people want to hear unexplained. In in my own little minor way, I I kind of know what you mean because this show's been going for uh, just over a mm. year with, with nowhere approaching the same success as yours. I mean, I have the most fantastic listeners, but I would like several thousand more of them. Right, <laughs> but I feel like I owe my listener base to a degree the template because that's what they signed up for that's what Mm. they came along Mm -hmm. with and that's what they've supported me in doing and it's like who am I then to go and 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 change that on them you know when they're the ones they're more important than me in that in that sense you know yes exactly so it is that balance that where you don't want to bore people you don't want to burn out yeah but at the same time, you don't want to go so far from the thing that people got on board with in the first place. It is a it's a really difficult tightrope to walk. And that's why I talk to people like you who work on a in a kind of slightly adjacent field to the norm. Um, I had Mark Commode on the show a few weeks ago oh, cool. talking about his favorite movie adaptations of horror books. And I feel like if I tiptoe in that direction and always keep the written words somewhere, you know, attached yeah. in the in the the, the the substance and the fundament, then then that is the way to do it. And yeah, but it is it is a tricky one. Actually, you know what? I was going to say this for the end of the conversation, but you brought it up. So to hell with the structure. <laughs> you talked about doing things a little bit different and, and kind of doing things at Halloween. Let's get this like front and foremost. I've just listened to your recent Halloween special, which was <laughs> called the fountain road files my listeners will love it it scared the living shit out of me i listened to it last night um when i was cooking dinner in my otherwise empty house with my dog staring at the wall yeah bad move 
scare the life out of me. So, so we probably won't have that much time to talk about it later on. So let's let's do it now because I think it's the thing that my listeners will adore. Tell us briefly about the Fountain Road tapes, this kind of side project to unexplain. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to it. And um, sounds like a job well done on my part. <laughs> but yeah, I I um I, I was introduced to the story a, a couple of years ago by a friend of mine um, about a a sort of horrific family murder it was a, as it often always is it was the, the father by the sounds of it he had some financial problems and he was probably uh severely depressed and anyhow he uh, murdered his wife and his kids and i think he had about five or six kids i can't remember off, off the top of my head and he uh, one of them survived so one of the one of the children survived and i had this idea of thinking it was more like i was just fascinated by the story and i was try- for a while i was trying to trace the sort of the lineage of this survivor and this happened in the late 19th century and it, it very quickly all went dark you couldn't find anything about him anyway that sat with me for a while and it'd been percolating in some to some degree and then the pandemic happened and uh, we all went into lockdown <clears throat> which also happened to coincide with me having uh, myself and my wife having our first baby our first child or our only child at the moment and um weirdly I'd set myself up so I had lots of time off uh, from Unexplained. But then also my contract fell through with Unexplained because of the pandemic. So I have an advertising agreement with a company and I have a a contract with them that sort of uh, ties me to them for 12 months. And we were about to sign it and then the pandemic happened and they basically rescinded all contracts. So I was essentially kind of out of a job in a way because I still wanted to do Unexplained, but I... I had to kind of figure out a way to do it that was going to be financially viable. And at that point, I'd had a bunch of new episodes written for the new series and I basically didn't want to release them for nothing. So I had to kind of figure out what I was going to do. Anyway, it's all coincided with the pandemic, lockdown and our baby being born. Um, So our baby was was crying quite a lot. And um, I was just kind of sitting around the house because she was sleeping a lot and I was, we were, when, when a baby's just been born, you know, you have to kind of be with them. 24 hours a day so I was just sitting and thinking about this story uh, of what happened to this this family in Tooting and um, and then I had this new recorder that I bought for another idea I was thinking about doing and I just had this idea like wouldn't it be cool to do a story about uh, someone who was in lockdown in a house that was haunted um, and so basically couldn't leave the property mm-hmm. but were being haunted by um, the ghost and and um, I, because of the baby situation and because I wasn't doing unexplained, I basically had the time and the, the impetus because it was also, you know, I don't, it's one of those things where you get an idea and you think, shit, someone's going to do this if I don't do it first. Um, and so I just did it. And, uh, you know, I didn't know how it would come out because it's me. I'm sort of acting and, and I'm not, I'm not an actor by any stretch of the imagination. So it's kind of more of a experiment. And then, it kind of just kept going and going with it to the point where I, I, I had something. So I just thought, oh, why not put it out? I've never, I've never listened to audio horror before, and I, I wasn't prepared for how much more potent silence is. Yeah, everything is taken away from you when it's an audio piece of work, and there is silence. There is no reference point. You haven't got any kind of visual cue to kind of warn you when the the jump scare is coming or when the next thing is happening. Yes. So I was wash, I was making my stir fry last night, and <laughs> genuinely, I'd had to keep pausing it in the silent parts to kind of deal with myself for what may be about to happen. As I say, I'll put it in the show notes. Everyone should listen to it. it it's a really quite both amusing, frightening, but also yeah. <laughs> really 
weirdly and grimly nostalgic piece of work because it's mad how quickly we've forgotten those early days of the pandemic i was i heard like yeah. things in the background i was like you know you put bits of the briefing from boris johnson waffling on and um yeah it's like jesus christ i'd forgotten that thing happened yeah it was a nice little time yeah. capsule of a, a weird time that was the other part of it as well as you know i wanted to do the story but i kind of thought it'd be funny to have a record of that you know yeah. in its own way it is it is kind of its own sort of diary of that of that time and it was a a really bizarre time and i had no idea that yeah. the murder involved was actually real that's yeah that's made things yeah. more unnerving um it's a particularly yeah. horrible case yeah <laughs> let's plow on into the the body of work into into unexplained in in earnest as i said off air i always try and ask guests things that they haven't been asked before but when setting the scene sometimes it's impossible mm. not to cover some of the same ground so let's try and do some of this early and then get into more novel stuff from there so you mentioned already that you conceive of this largely as a horror podcast or certainly that you tend towards that kind of an end of the spectrum yeah have you always been someone who's interested in the dark and the supernatural and the unexplained i'm assuming a pre-existing fascination for the subject <laughs> yeah very much so i it's a funny one because i i don't know i, th I think back of my time uh, as when i was younger and as a child and and um i mean even now a bit a bit today as I sort of present myself I don't think I meet people who are very obviously into horror and the genre of horror and science fiction as well and um you know it's kind of something they very much wear on their sleeve <clears throat> and I don't think people might assume that about me if they were to meet me that I sort of my love and fascination and interest with it is is as intense um as you know as, as anyone else really and I was thinking about it before uh, speaking to you today because I, I wondered if this would come up as a question and I can't really identify a reason or a time or a specific as to why I, I, I think, you know, why, why I'm so drawn to this. I mean, I can sort of give you a few sort of anecdotes, I suppose, which is uh, from quite an early age, I, I had a, a comprehension of, of mortality and my own mortality. I had a dream that I, I remember vividly to this day. I must have been about six or seven years old. And it's a very bizarre dream. It must have been something that was on the news a lot of the time. But basically, I was, uh, President Gorbachev, if anyone remembers um, him from the uh, um, Soviet Union, um, was in my dream. And he kind of, uh, there, was, there was a skirmish on a hill. He got shot and he rolled over. And when, he, when his body stopped rolling over, the, his face was looking at me. No idea what that means. But anyway, in that second, it occurred to me that people die, I will die, and that once I die, that there's nothing else afterwards. And I woke up screaming, absolutely sort of terrified um, at this realisation. And um, I kind of screamed the house down. I remember my dad coming downstairs and sort of spending the rest of the night with me, like trying to calm me down. Um and I guess ever since then, I've been terrified of dying. I, and I don't know, that means I have a sort of preoccupation with death. I mean, if anything, it would mean I sort of want to think about it as little as possible. But I think these things, anyone that sort of feels like that, it's hard for it to kind of to stop it coming into your mind every now and again. Um, and another thing I kind of remember, I was into, I think, I don't know, I feel like this is quite a common thing, but certainly growing up as a, a, a child in the 80s sort of stroke, 90s with vhs secretly watching um <laughs> horror films that were you know ludicrously out of my age range you know anybody that had an older well, i had an i had a friend who was about three or four years older than me when i was about 10 or 11 um 
And, you know, I don't know where these tapes come from, but people find them. And I was introduced to Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, Critters, stuff like that, um, Terminator. You know, I watched them when I was young and I and I don't, I mean, I, I actually know, I don't remember being scared of them. I was terrified of Freddy Krueger and um, Pinhead, um, you know, just appearing in my room at night. I've always been terrified of the dark. Um, even now, I've, I find it incredibly hard to, to walk through the flat if the lights are off. Um, and but I don't know. Yeah, I've just, for some reason, was very sort of drawn to those things. But when I say they scared me, like, I don't feel at the same time, I've never, I've never felt damaged by horror. Um, and if anything, you know, in terms of, you know, created horror, artistic horror. Um, and and I, th- I think one of the things I've learned as I've got older, I mean, the when you read real stories about the horrible things that happen in the real world, they are so much worse than anything I've, I think I've ever seen on film mm-hmm. um, or read <clears throat> um, in, a, in a story. Like I said, I, I, I don't want to give a, a sort of pop psychology answer as to why I've always been drawn to it. But yeah, I have, I have always been, I, I think, I, yeah, this is what I will say though, that I, I think when I was younger, I always felt like to, um, kind of express a a real love and fascination for horror and and even science fiction to a degree um, was not something that I felt was ever encouraged or it seemed to be something that wasn't really it, it never it never it, it never I never felt the that it was something I was able to to unapologetically talk about um, whereas as of, now I'm older I I am more than happy to to to, to talk about it all the time and uh, say how much I love it. I know what you mean by that. I wonder if that is partly, obviously, as we get older, we give less of a toss about other people's opinions. Mm. But also, I think that the internet and subsequent kind of niche, you know, in quotation marks, geek culture, the minute you yeah. get outside the mainstream, it's kind of everything is celebrated these days. So I think yeah. that's a wholly positive thing for, for genre. I was listening to you talk then and just thinking how strange it is how closely you describe the architecture of my own brain. Because (laughs) I didn't have a friend with VHS. I I had a grandmother who was wildly irresponsible and loved (laughs) horror. And I used to stay at the house on a Saturday night and she'd put on, I remember watching Alien and Matt Ryan Elm Street. Yeah, Alien, of course, yeah. All that stuff. So, yeah, but other than that, exactly the same kind of like steep slope from my early adolescence into into the macabre. Yeah. Again, I'm completely throwing out my well-constructed progression through this interview to, to get to a, a point but you said then that obviously you don't like walk around in the dark you know that you you still have that niggle in your mind of, of fear and stuff yeah. that i think all true horror fans have i think if you are impervious to fear you're probably not going to get much from this stuff right but let, let's jump in then let's leap into a story from the book because let's talk about it first then i'll explain why i'm linking it to what you've just said okay so one chapter of the book tells the story of the Jewish Dibbuk box. Mm. Now, some listeners may have heard of this because it, it's it's become a bit of an a, online urban legend as well, and it was inspiration for the 2012 movie The Possession. Can you very briefly, in a few sentences, just summarise the Dibbuk box? I'm talking too much. I want to put it back to you. Just tell us a little bit what the story is <laughs> about, and I'll, I'll, I'll go from there. So essentially, um, this is a, it's a very contemporary story, or it certainly was, when I wrote it um, because it's about an item that was uh, put up for sale on eBay. Um, and this item was, it was originally found supposedly, I mean, the story is 
kind of up for debate. Um, it was found originally in a sort of yard sale, um, and it's a kind of cabinet, an ornamental cabinet that I'm sort of taken to understand uh, is for storing wine that you would use in a in in a, a number of Jewish um, rituals. So it's it's called the Dibbet Box because when uh, this was put on sale on eBay, um, it was done so because the person who bought it claimed that it was haunted and that it was haunted by a demon that basically resided inside the box or was part of the fabric of this box. And um, and so it apparently was then bought off this this uh, this guy who put it up on eBay and the person who came into possession of it then themselves started experiencing very strange, terrifying um, events that person then sold it again to a, a third person who was a curator of a museum. And actually, the museum was a, a, I think it was an orthopedic museum uh, at a university. Um, so it wasn't actually anything to do with strange occult things, but the, the person who bought it had a fascination with that sort of stuff. And they then experienced uh, a number of weird and strange events. And, and what's quite interesting and particularly interesting about the story is that um, these three individuals who all claim to have very similar terrifying experiences have no connection to each other. They, they didn't continue to have connection to each other after they passed the things on. I think as the story is told the the third guy um, and his name escapes me at the moment, which is annoying, but he had no contact with the person he bought it from and, and heard nothing about what they had experienced. That all came out much later on. So it's yeah, kind of in a nutshell. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Right. So, what I found, I mean, the story is really interesting, whether it's true or not, whether it's real, I don't care. It's a great story. Yeah. But the, the cool part of it is that it's a story that seems to, in some way, infect anyone who gets involved with it. And, yeah. and as you make the point, you know, you've got involved with it by writing about it. And then you say quite chillingly, yeah. and anyone reading this has dipped a toe in these waters too. And it's this sense of, you know, um, you, you're exposing yourself to the other to something that could be malignant right yeah or malign and and then at the end of the chapter you mentioned this odd coincidence where something from the story seems to spill into your own life and i, I won't spoil that climax for the reader because it's it's a lovely little anecdote um but the interesting thing is that you then say and i'm going to quote you because it, it's word perfect of how i feel about certain things you say that quote for a moment I felt gripped by something, the sense of being on a psychological ledge that if I allowed myself to, I could easily tip off from. Yeah. That spoke to me profoundly because I feel like I live my life on that ledge. I, yeah. I read about horror and the supernatural and all of these things that I don't believe in, but mm -hmm. I always feel like if I expose myself to these ideas not it's not that i fear a demon is going to come and get me it's that i'm exposing myself to the threat that that fear will worm its way into my head yeah and will you know tip me off that ledge and i think that's it's such a a a, a pithy but profound way to talk about our our kind of exposure and experience with these kinds of stories and these kinds of anecdotal experiences and that's a yeah. very very long-winded way to basically ask you do you ever get genuinely frightened by what you do? Has the show made you feel any different or any more unsure about the world around you? Um, I think um, 
it's it's a, it's a really good question. I I think so. I guess the first way to answer is there was one story early on that really has, has really got under my skin and, and has always kind of stayed with me. It was called Demons in Suburbia, and it was about a a guy called Michael Taylor, I believe, mm-hmm. who got involved in this sort of local Christian community group and somehow over the process of of spending time with them he uh he suffered some kind of mental breakdown a psychological breakdown and um he ended up murdering his wife uh with his bare hands and i think the sort of particularly chilling element was that he essentially ripped her face off with his with his bare hands and he was then kind of found wandering around uh the streets covered in blood um in a, in a sort of daze, that's the way it's sort of described. And it kind of goes back to the that point you, you're making and, and the, the quote really that that is a, a kind of the idea of tipping over into a, a sort of madness um, that you are no longer able to come back from or to find yourself in a place that is not concurrent with everyone else's thinking around you. I think maybe more to more something like that um obviously that's it's an extreme version of that when you're you know murdering the you know the woman you're married to without sort of realizing but um i think that just that kind of idea of becoming disconnected with everyone else's sense of reality i I find quite terrifying so yeah that story really got under my skin i think because I don't think it was, you know, it certainly wasn't a premeditated murder. I don't think he woke up, you know, I don't, I don't think he ever wanted to do what, what, what he ended up doing. I think, you know, he was sort of out of control in some way. And, um, you know, and I don't know that for sure. I don't know the full details of the, I, you know, I've never seen the kind of medical assessment of um, Michael Taylor, but I got the impression anyway, that this was some kind of psychological break. And, mm-hmm. and I imagine he might've come around at some point to the understanding of what he had done. And, and I, and I can't imagine what that would have felt like. And obviously it's, it's far worse for the, the, his wife who was murdered, but um, everything that that story encompasses, uh, I've, I found very chilling. And, and also it's one of the few times when I was doing, uh, when I was recording something and I got really freaked out. I've read elsewhere that you have basically three criteria for inclusion of a topic on your show. And, and tell yeah. me if I'm wrong on this. I may have sourced this incorrectly, but I read that you said there must be a human element at play. The story must remain unexplained at the time of recording. And thirdly, yes. it must be a story and not just an event. Yes. From this show's angle, it's that third point that interests me the most because mm. it seems at its heart that your show is as much about the nature and the need for storytelling as it is about the strange phenomena that actually make up the stories. Um, so can you elaborate a little bit more on that point? What, what in your eyes simply makes a good story? Yeah, this is, yeah, it's a good question again. I, I mean, I would, yeah, just to quickly say that I think you, you touched on it earlier that this is a show sort of fundamentally about uncertainty. And so as long as the story has enough to suspend your disbelief about what may or may not have happened, then, um, like that's a kind of, Ultimately, that has to be, that has to be retained throughout. Um, but that's kind of the one of the sort of founding principles of an unexplained story. I get a lot of people contacting me and saying, "Why don't you do a story about the the white lady of so and so manner or whatever?" 
And, you know, essentially that's just a ghost sighting or I suppose a ghost mm-hmm. sighting when somebody has seen a, a, an apparition, um, you know, and, and I, and I might look into it and then it'll turn out that it, it's, it's, a you know, there's a, there's a, a myth about a woman who may have, you know, at some point died there, but there's no, nothing on record. There's, there's nothing really to sort of get your teeth into. And so in my point of view, that's just, uh, that's just kind of an, an, an event. It's not a, a story. It's something that occurred, but it's, there's not a lot to kind of build out from there. So the the ideal story, and this is, and I think I've I've become better at this as I've gone on because the stories have got few, harder and harder to find. So where you might come across a story that's really well documented, like um, Travis Walton, who is a yeah. famous supposed UFO abductee, um, you know, this is a person who uh, was working with a bunch of guys in a forest. Um, they were all there with him. Um, he then went missing for five days. Police were involved. He then gets found. Media are involved. UFO ufology groups come in to kind of analyze what's going on. There's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of like newspaper reports. It's quite easy to plot out that story. Whereas I did an uh, I did another story about um, the Kunin Ghost House in uh, Ireland. Um, I hope I said that right. I can't remember uh, exactly that's the name of it but um it, it there wasn't really a lot to it but i was i felt like i i really loved the, the the atmosphere of it so because there were enough people involved i was able to sort of pull out threads of it and and you know maybe leave a few more a bit more create a bit more space to to make it seem you know scary as opposed to like filling it with plot and letting you know everything that's going on um and so I yeah I, i'm not really answering this question very well but um I think the idea that something really has to have um, chronology to it or multiple perspectives in order to build it out as a kind of, I guess, something that's more three-dimensional than, you know, the straightforward, I saw a a grey lady in in a window at a castle once. Um, But the difficult thing is that I'm operating within the parameters of what... um, you know what we know to to have happened. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't make anything up. Like I, I you know, I'm, I'm not able to really because I'm dealing with real people. So I do sometimes write a bit of dialogue, but I feel like when I do that, it's it's stuff that's reasonable to assume might have been said. I don't put thoughts or you know opinions into people's heads. I don't you know try and represent someone in some way if I have no idea that that's what they were like. And most of the time, I don't. Yeah, I need I need a lot of sort of primary source material i suppose um in order to kind of build the story anyway well that that brings us to your research actually because one of the things that sets your show definitely apart from myriad other unexplained podcasts because there are many you know um (laughs) the thing that no one else is doing is anywhere near the scope and breadth of the background Mm. you will often contextualize the central mystery with kind of historical scientific and especially like philosophical material. Yeah. So I've heard you talk about the nature of subjectivity, psychogeography, Einsteinian, Newtonian theory, the Heisenberg principle, you know, all of this stuff mixed in with the human and geographic history of the area where the story takes place. It's a simple question, but how do you manage the research in both a practical sense? And also how do you conceive of how to embed these tangential strands into what in other people's hands would just be a simple, creepy campfire tale. 
Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, thanks for uh, noticing that. I mean, the thing is, well, on the one hand, it's it's there's a you know a desire to want to differentiate myself from other people, but also I think it's kind of a reflection of 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 me, you know, and that's and that th- these are things that I'm interested in um, externally beyond the stories that I'm telling, and so sometimes it's like oh, I really love this idea. How can I shoehorn it into this story? Other times it's 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 there's a kind of natural jumping point, like you know. Uh, I did it, I think, for a few early on stories that were involving, you know, that were about, you know, uh, apparent UFOs and things. You know, the, the the idea of space in general um, and the universe, you know, that's an easy thing to kind of draw on. And it's an easy opportunity there to sort of tell a, a sort of slightly other story that, it, that has relevance to the strange unexplained story, but means that I can discuss something or reference something or bring something to the listener's attention that that they would never have got just from the story itself as you say there are a lot of shows now that do similar stuff and um a lot of these stories are, you know have probably been told and retold in other people's shows <clears throat> so i'm always thinking about how what's an what's an interesting perspective or an interesting angle and a lot of the time you can you can predict how these stories are going to be told you know it's about sort of moving away from that so you know a lot of the time when you're reading about this stuff, it, it, it's a lot of stories are from quite long ago, so they're quite dated and old-fashioned in the way that people write about them. But even today, people will describe a husband and wife, and it will always be the husband first. And so sometimes I, you know, I'll say the wife and husband, mm-hmm. and it's like a, a minor, minor thing. But in that is kind of a representation of how I'm also approaching the story. So, sort of shifting the needle. Yeah. So I'm thinking of whose perspective actually should we take at this point instead of just telling the story or thinking of like, what, what would this person actually be thinking at this moment, as opposed to just sort of going through the sort of bullet points of what took place, mm-hmm. like trying to be a bit more like put you in that situation um, while at the same time, not being able to make assumptions about any of the people in the story. So it's not always easy, but, um, but yeah. Um, but yeah, t- I, yeah, again, l- long story, long, answer to your question and actually took it somewhere completely different but in terms of like the general stuff it, it's these are things that I kind of always have always fascinated me and I'm always looking for places in various stories where I feel like there's a legitimate place to kind of jump off from on them actually yeah one good one I was thinking about was um the the mad gasser a mattoon a mattoon yeah and so that was um uh, so that involved um Fritz, oh god, oh god, yeah, Fritz Haber, isn't it? The uh, who created nitrogen fertilizer, basically, and so nitrogen fertilizer was one of the founding elements of of the gas that was used by the mad gasser of Mattoon. So I it, it gave me a wonderful opportunity, wonderful opportunity to obviously tell the story of the mad gasser of Mattoon, but then link it back to Fritz Haber, who in chemistry terms was an absolute genius. Um, he created this sort of uh, fertilizer, which is essentially t- created out of thin air using the nitrogen in, in, in the atmosphere, um, which saved, you know, has been heralded as saving millions of people's lives from starvation because it enabled us to, um, you know, create better yields of, uh, um, you know, of uh, crops and things. And so people w- were less likely to starve. But then it was also the foundation of the um, mustard gas used in the First World War, mm-hmm. which he, you know, I, I don't, again, I've, 
you say I did a lot of research, but I, I, I don't know for sure if this is the case, but he seemed to be quite indifferent to the fact that, and maybe that's a, a, a nice way of putting it, he was indifferent to the fact that he was he was responsible for that and that he'd made this sort of terrifying biological weapon, basically. Baked, exactly. Baked into that there is this idea that, you know, the all of these mysteries are frightening, but, you know, the vicissitudes of, of humanity, like the, the you know, the, these hinge moments in time, the way Oppenheimer, things like that, you know, these, you, you yeah. come back to those stories again and again. Uh, and yeah. I think it's more complex than just saying that real life is more scary than fiction because you, yeah. you use these unexplained stories and these mysteries to kind of unpick how the human mind works in a way. And you, you use them as, as tools to show us, I suppose, why we then get situations that are more frightening than fiction, that the, the fiction fuels the reality in a way. It, it's a, it's a hinge point yeah. for how humans behave. I just find it, I find it very, very, philosophically satisfying way to go about telling me stories that I as I say I, I'm a nerd for this stuff I've heard 90% of these stories but I listen every week because I haven't heard them framed in the way that you frame them and that's not false praise I get accused on this show of being too obsequious but I do really? mean it <laughs> um let me change tack a little bit because we've talked a lot about the you know the quite substantial philosophy behind what you do but I do want to throw my listeners a bone so let, let's talk a little bit in a slightly more trivial way about some of the actual stories in your book and, and on your podcast. Yeah. I mean, no doubt you've been asked some of these questions many times before, but do you have a favourite episode or, I suppose, an easier question, a favourite category of unexplained mystery? Yeah, I mean, my my favourite category is actually the sort of the lesser spotted unexplained article, which is the sort of mystery that isn't easily quantifiable as like a ghost story or a ufo story or a um, you know true crime story so um, because of that i think my my two favorites probably still are um the first episode which was about a woman called um netta fenario Mm -hmm. who went to you know if anyone if if you haven't heard the show um so it's the very first unexplained episode and um she was uh quite fascinated in the occult and i I, off the top of my head, I think it was, this is the 1920s, maybe 1920s, 1930s. Um, she had become fascinated in the occult and she um, had developed a, an interest in fairy folk and trying to communicate with fairy folk. And And I think there's an element of that, which is about the... Um, just communicating with some sort of being that's beyond the, you know, beyond the veil, as it were, of of, of the human existence that we understand. So I, I don't know if it was literal fairies or the fairy was a kind of symbol for something else, something other beyond the veil. Um, and anyway, she pursued this interest uh, to the point where she went to a, um, a remote Scottish island. She went to um, the Isle of Iona um, in Scotland, which I annoyingly have still not made it to, but I would really like to visit. Um, and she was found then, so she stayed there a couple of days, a couple of nights at this um, uh, sort of inn or at this woman's sort of B&B, I suppose. And she then disappeared and she was found in uh, sort of wearing a cloak and had carved a uh, ritual um, mark into the ground with a with a silver knife. And God, I can't remember if she was found inside a fairy ring, but it you know, that would totally be in keeping with the story but anyway she found out a very mysterious circumstances dead um 
and it was kind of late in the year. It wasn't, but it wasn't like, you know, freezing cold temperatures. Um, there was no obvious cause of death. Um, you know, maybe now by modern standards, the, somebody might have um, been able to find out what happened. Um, and thinking about it now, maybe something, you know, quite sinister did happen to her. But as far as the police reports go, there was no obvious cause of death. I think they wrote it down as exposure. And, you know, on the one hand, obviously, this is a terrible tragedy, a tragic story about what happened to this woman. But also from my perspective, you know, from a very sort of cynical, uh, unexplained writing perspective, it's wonderfully rich with, you know, everything that, for my opinion, makes the best unexplained story. You've got the strange, you've got the, you know, you've got the um, sort of idea of hidden dimensions and mm-hmm. the occult and that sort of thing element to it. And then the other story that I've, I've, I've always been haunted by was the one about the um, the lighthouse guards uh, the on the remote Scottish island. Yeah. Um, anything with a Scottish island in it basically seems to be... Uh, There's a book um, by, I forget her first name. She's coming on the bloody show and I've forgotten her name. <laughs> it's um, Emma Stonex called The Lighthouse. It's a novelization. Oh, yeah. either, oh, I haven't read it yet because I need to pick it up before she comes on, but it's either about the Flannan Isles or it's a case inspired by the Flannan Isles. Right. And it's supposed to be fantastic. So, yeah, I, uh, I recommend I'm just that. looking it up now. It looks great. Yeah. The Lamplighters. Yes, of course. The, the, light, the Lighthouse is the movie, isn't it? The Lamplighters. My God, you can tell I haven't slept. <laughs> That's the one. Yeah, it's supposed to be fantastic. Um, yeah, that sounds great. I'll just say what I've got you. My favourite episode, I mean, I love many of them, but my favourite one, and forgive me the pronunciation here now because I'm not good at this stuff, but it's um, the one about, uh, is it Heol Fanog, the haunted house in the in the Brecon Beacons? I mean, your pronunciation is as good as mine. Yeah. I, that, I believe that is, right, yeah. That's like the quintessential ghost story, and I, uh, I absolutely yeah. adored it. In fact, I, I would go as far as to say season four, episode one, um, everyone have a listen to that one if you're going to start somewhere you don't want to start at the beginning if you've got a haunted house story try that it's great thank you that's yeah I like that one I notice and this is this is again a, a question of personal indulgence here because I've got you trapped here so I can ask you a question which may <laughs> which may satisfy me in the future I notice you haven't done many episodes on cryptids or monsters or, you know, flesh and blood creatures that may be out there. Now, that's a particular fascination of mine. Is there any reason you haven't dealt with that much? That is a really good point and something I need to uh, remind myself of when I'm looking for more stories. They're absolutely right. I I mean, I I actually did one in the American version of the book. I did, um, which you wouldn't have seen, but I I did... um, the Mothman, ah. or the, the thing that is called the Mothman, or yeah. you know, labeled labeled the Mothman, um, which I I loved. I love that story. But Again, that is high I weirdness, sort of, isn't it? That's real high weirdness. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I, I'm a, you know, it's kind of it's it's a uh, you know, uh, I don't know, a bit of a sucker for American teenagers, you know, uh, driving in their cars at mm-hmm. night, getting up to all sorts of nonsense. And yeah, so because it's in the book, I I. Do you know what? I don't actually know if this is a contractual obligation, but I got the impression that by putting something in the book, it meant I couldn't actually do it on the podcast. I think at this point, it's more like my own decision because I want people to, to buy the book. But I think ultimately, yeah. eventually, I'll just put, I'll just do it as a podcast and put it out on Unexplained, mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, but yeah, you can find that in the book. But the other thing is I was, I've been meaning to do a story for ages, which is 
that has a cryptic crossover, which is um, about a part, a, 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 an area of, um, I think it's Vermont in, a, in America, in the USA. It's the Thingy Triangle. Yeah. Bennington Triangle. Bennington Triangle, yeah. And I, I had a plan to do, I was going to do a kind of series. It's going to go out there and, and um, I, I know, like a kind of take one one story and make it a series and, mm-hmm. sort of, and do it as more of a sort of, a bit more of as an as an investigator sort of thing. But but it, it, I, I think I try to make it a bit more interesting than that. So, uh, but anyway, and I've been into that for such a long time that I haven't done it as an episode because I, at the back of my mind, think I'm still going to do that. But that was just before the pandemic really struck. And okay. it's been almost two years since then. So, no, I need to do it. I, I, I want to. I, I lived in the Bennington Triangle for a while. Did you? No way. Yeah, I, uh, I've said to, I, I've told this on, on the show before, but I, I spent a year. I basically set off to America. My life fell apart. Job job ended. Relationship ended. And I basically packed a, su- a suitcase or a backpack with like two pairs of jeans and some t-shirts. And right. I, I went to America, got on a greyhound, and I, I worked around the country on farms. Ah, uh, sounds brilliant. Uh, and I worked in a farm in the Bennington Triangle. Uh, it's a big old place, um, and it was it was like a like a ranch. Right. Uh, I was living with two guys who would often. Like they worked in a town 90 miles away. They'd often not come back for three days. Wow. There was no phone signal. Yeah. It was only internet. Yeah, yeah. But I didn't have internet because I'd killed by roaming on my phone. So I was literally living on a farm, chopping logs all day for a living in the middle of the most yeah. haunted uh, real estate in, in New England. Yeah, it was. That sounds fantastic. It was quite a few months. Did, did you like it? Did you have, was it a good experience? I mean, probably in a bit of a complicated space when you got there yeah but no it was I, I did it as a kind of mindfulness it. thing about learning to be alone with my thoughts without, without the clutter of everyday life yeah and, uh, i adored it yeah i had a great year yeah but yeah it's a beautiful see place. strange uh, not a single thing no not a single i used to hear coyotes howling from the woods at night um which was right. eerie but no didn't see a single thing uh, although i did I, yeah. I went for a run through the woods and stumbled across an old overgrown um private family graveyard uh, and that, that was oh, quite wow. a cool moment but beyond that yeah um, it would be it would be ridiculous of me to have this opportunity to talk to you and not do what everyone does, which is proffer a story idea. Please do. I've said cryptids. <laughs> I've read your criteria. I think you should look into the nineteen twenty four battle for Ape Canyon. Wow, not heard of that. It's a supposed fight between some loggers and a tribe of Sasquatch in I think it was in Washington what? State. Um, yeah, the Battle for Eight Canyon. You can Google it. There's loads of stuff out there. I'll say no more. That's brilliant. Uh, but have a look because I, I think it would fit your. It's uh, on the show. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, yeah, that is on. That's going on. <laughs> right. I'm gonna gonna draw to an end here with um, kind of you know linked questions, I suppose, as a bit of a final thesis. But have any cases given you real pause for thought? Are there any that you? believe may have a good chance of having an either supernatural or extra normal explanation i think i don't know how i don't know how best to describe the, uh, how, how best to answer this i mean um the problem is my brain is I immediately go to uh rational you know in, in a kind of mm-hmm. reductive sense like you know rational interpretation of what's happened so where sometimes you get so I mean I find this a lot when I'm telling when I'm researching these stories that somebody will see something strange in the sky, for example, um, or hear a strange sound in their house, and it seems like almost immediately they go to, oh, it's a UFO, it's an alien 
extraterrestrial spaceship or they immediately go to something supernatural is making noises in my house it would it it would it would take me so much to to get me beyond thinking that there was a rational explanation and with all these stories you know a lot of them are you know you're you're dealing with anecdotal information most of the time and so i can't there's nothing that's allowed me to get beyond that yet okay um i would but i would say what is quite fascinating is and we'll go back to the Dibbert box. When I interviewed a um, really lovely guy who was the person who bought the, the box, the, third, the, third, the, the museum curator who bought the box, he was absolutely genuine. You know, totally, I felt very trusting of him. I, I had absolutely no reason to doubt a word he was saying. And, I, and, I, and I'm convinced that he, you know, as, as people say, he believed what he was saying. I don't think he was trying to get anything out of saying this. Um, and he, and yet he he says he saw black sort of shadow creatures moving around his house. He was kind of haunted by a, uh, I think he was haunted by a dream that, that other people were haunted by. You know, so, um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like a halfway answer, I suppose. Um, but, but I guess my point is I didn't see that. Mm. So I don't know, I don't know what to do with that information. Well, a linked question that I know you've been asked before. What case would you most like to know the actual truth about? Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> I think, do you know the Yuba City 5? Yeah, yeah. Did, did I talk about that one? I, um, I, I can't remember what I, I can't remember the title of it. Because I, I often, I being a total novice about podcasting when I started out, I would, I wouldn't say what the case was or what the story was necessarily about because I didn't want people to, like I didn't want it to be in the title or in the description so people would then look it up before they listened to it. So anyway, one of the stories was about a group of kids who were called the Yuba City Five. And, um, was it Into the Forest? Was it called Into the Forest? Or Call to the Forest? Yeah, Call to the Forest. It's a Nick Cave, I think it's a Nick Cave song. It was a Nick Cave reference, which I'm quite a fan of putting various <laughs> song titles into my titles. Um um, I'm always thinking of doing a competition for if people can um, point out the uh, all the song titles I've pilfered. Um, and anyway, yeah, so this was a group of kids who, for inexplicable reasons, went, drove off to a basketball game that was about 50 miles or 100 miles from their home. They have had a night out at this basketball game. Um, and instead of going back home, they drove up into a mountain, sort of forest on a mountainside, um, where they all died and they all, uh, so they were obviously declared missing and the police then went up into the mountains to try and find them. And they were all eventually found kind of scattered all over the mountain, uh, various stages. I, there might even be one person whose body was never found. So there's all sorts of theories as to, um, I think once they get to the mountain and it's, it's freezing cold and it's snowing and it's, 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 uh, nighttime. So it's, you know, you can, you can get disorientated. I mean, you could probably ex- find an explanation as to why they ended up dying the way they did. <clears throat> but what were they doing there in the first mm-hmm. place? It's completely, uh, you know, impossible to kind of try and understand. And also there's the fact that one of them is missed, you know, the body was never found. So there's some speculation that maybe they murdered the others. But, the, but the, uh, there was a really tragic thing about it was that I think they were children, or they were children, they were kind of teenagers or young men. Um, I think it was sort of 18, 19, 20, who had um, learning differences and, 
they obviously they had independence, but I think they were still very sort of close to their families, and you know, a lot they all lived at home still, and you know, it's probably quite a big deal that they were able to go out together that that night together to drive up to the basketball game, and so it's yeah, it's just a horribly it's it's a horribly tragic story, but equally very strange, bizarre mystery, mm. um, and it's quite similar to the there's there's, there's similarities with the Dyatlov Pass story as well yeah um where you know they go off into the mountains and and for inexplicable reasons they all end up dying it is very sad that one yeah it's a tragic story yeah do you do you have one? Oh, without a doubt skinwalker ranch oh yeah, yeah right. <laughs> actually no do you know actually yeah i mean people people who don't know we, we can't it would be a podcast of its own yeah Sk- skinwalker ranch is a um a homestead in utah that yeah. essentially is a locus for every single form of unexplained phenomenon. Yeah, from the monsters to portals to ghosts to it's it's a UFOs. It is it's like a yeah. nexus point for all the weird. And but yeah. my favorite detail about Skinwalker Ranch, the thing that gives me chills every time, beyond everything else, beyond the shadows and the trees and the dogs being killed and all that, is that when yeah. that family bought it, all of the doors and cupboards had locks on them. Yeah, isn't that brilliant detail? It's like um, it's like if you bought a house and then you discover the kind of uh, secret room behind the bathroom mirror. Exactly that. The, but but that actually, you know, uh, I will sort of correct myself what you were asking me earlier about which which cases have sort of given me pause for thought. I you know similar to similarly to talking to um, the, the the guy I interviewed for the Divot Box. There's something about that story that's it that it there's too many people that aren't you know. It, that we wouldn't describe as idiots in in many other kind of walks of life. Mm. There's too many people who are involved in that story that that are certain that something strange was going on in that place. Um, the, the the stories that I kind of want to believe more than others. I'm I'm a real sucker for the the more sort of science fiction, uh, extra dimension um, portals yeah. and things like that. Um, so I kind of of all the ones that I'd like to be true, that one is. That one's a really great, and and also it's got you know it's got a bit of the um, Native American history baked into it as well, which I'd I'd like to do more, but I, I don't know so much. I love anything that's predicated on previous lore. It gives it a really like yeah, I, like my favorite scene in any horror film is when they go to the library and they do all the research on the microfiche and all yeah. that, and they, <laughs> they realize it happened. You know, it's been happening for centuries. I just love that stuff. Um, it's totally, totally, yeah, yeah. The 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 sort of idea that things have been identified as, as you know, in different ways through history, but ultimately they're talking about exactly. the same yeah. thing. You know, oh, yeah, love it. Angels, demons, and yeah, all that stuff. We'll, we'll finish off then, I suppose. Can we finish with the two questions I always ask my guests? They probably seem a little bit trivial now in, in, in light of what we've just talked about. But <laughs> um, can you recommend a book for my listeners to read and tell us why? Yeah, so I've gone for um, a non-fiction book, which I feel a bit silly doing on a, a sort of more of a literary show. But um so the book is called Straw Dogs by John Gray. And um, as I say, it's not that Straw Dogs and it's not that John Gray. So um, <laughs> John Gray, <laughs> there's a John, there's a, uh, the guy who wrote, I didn't know this till uh, quite recently, but the guy who wrote um, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus or Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars is uh, John Gray. So it's not him. <laughs> um, so John Gray is a, a philosopher. I, th- I, th- I believe he might have, he might be the um, focus of some controversy. Uh, I'm not quite sure exactly what that might be, but um, 
uh, putting that aside, um, uh, he wrote this book called Straw Dogs. I think it came out in early 2000s. Um, and so I, I suggested this book because this is one of the, the sort of one of those rare books that you you read that kind of shifts your entire perspective of um, the world. Um, and so I, I, I think I might have said before that I, I very much feel like I saw the world in a certain way before I read this book, and I've and I've seen it very differently ever since. And and that the way it changed the way that I see things has not been challenged since either, which is you know I think quite a sort of testament to. I think how how brilliant the book is, and, and and it's kind of central point, which is really um, that humans are animals, and it's basically it's kind of basically comes down to that. It's much more sort of complex and and, and more interesting than that. But um, it's sort of I guess the best way to describe it is that you you might often hear people refer to to things such as humans and animals, mm-hmm. and and I'm always kind of correcting people as to say that it should be humans and other animals, and so sort of buried within that sort of concept is just the idea that there's nothing cosmically special about a human. You know, you can extend that to saying that anything that's sort of living, you know, whether it's conscious or not, but I mean, maybe to to be less complicated, that's anything that's conscious has as much validity to live. But at the same time, human beings are not ultimately driven by anything, you know, that's any sort of sense of higher purpose. Um, You know, we might, find ways within our own sort of lives to to do that but i think if you pull out and see human beings as organisms they they sort of you know they operate in in the same way that any other animal might and it's a good sort of um principle to 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 to, it's a good prism with which to view humanity and the human experience um through um i think a lot of people might be sort of terrified by that idea but i also find it quite reassuring in a way I mean, I need to read that particularly because that's something I've been trying to articulate myself for years and it could probably make me a damn sight more informed on the subject. So, yeah, definitely Straw Dogs by John Gray. And the last question, um, never more pertinent than after what we've just talked about. Yeah. What what truly scares you? So, um, as I said before, it used to be the dark. <laughs> but now, uh, so I had a, uh, my wife and I had a baby last year um and having never had a child before i can say sort of hands down the only thing the only thing that actually scares me is uh something terrible happening to her you know um and it's sort of it's just it's just one of those things where and it's a it's, having a child is it's you know it's been a very interesting experience for someone who you know is trying to a lot of the time i find myself trying to sort of intellectualize human experience rather than you know, obviously I feel it, I feel things because I'm, I'm human, but <clears throat> a lot of the time I'm trying to kind of separate my feelings from trying to find a more sort of philosophical un- understanding about way things mm-hmm. are. And it's like, you know, I, I sort of intellectually, I understand that having a baby, you immediately have, you know, you, you have a compulsion and, a, and a, a love and, and a sort of connection to them, you know, which is part of the, you know, evolutionary um survival of human beings you know it's 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 all sort of built into the mechanism of, of being a human being um so even on an intellectual level as compared to just the actual physical like love that you have for this this thing that you you know you want to share every sort of waking minute with um 
there, there is there's both those things are equally powerful in the way that I can imagine how unbearable it would be for something to happen to her. If that makes any sense, I don't think I've I kind of explained that very well. But um, yeah, no, makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I don't have children myself, but I can I can only imagine the, the everyday living terror. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's a story. I'm re- you're reading a story about um, you know a family who lose a child. You know, before you have a child, that you know that's a terrible mm-hmm. thing. You know, you can sort of you can engage with it on a human level, but you I have to say, until you've actually had, had a child, and this is not a I'm not, I'm not saying it's an unfair reflection on anyone that doesn't have a child. I'm just saying, having had a child now, I read those things in a completely the the the, the, the different the level of intensity with which I feel that now is 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 almost sort of um, impossible to to quantify. And I stay away. From, I try not to read. You know, I tr- if if it's a story that's about something like that, I try not to. Sometimes I don't want to know. Sounds crazy. Please do not think I'm making this comparison, but I have a dog that I love more than anyone else in the world. I don't mind that comparison. Yeah, I think it's fine. I, I love it more than most people that are that I know, right? It's like, there's probably like eight people yeah. and then my dog, you know what I mean? And at any given yeah. time, there are six people in that list who could quickly drop down the league table. Right. <laughs> I now cannot read or watch. We talked about Midnight Mass in the Patreon Extra. The scene where the dog, oh, um, where back yeah, the dog, I had to literally yeah. pause it immediately and leave the room. I've become like yeah. knee jerk yeah. phobia about anything happening to, to dogs or any animal, really. So when I then extrapolate that to it being my actual child, I can't, I can't yeah. even begin to imagine what it must be like. So yeah, that is a perfectly valid fear to to have. Um, we'd better leave it there, Richard, because we have talked about twice as long as a normal episode. So the book is out already. Everyone should go and buy it. Everyone should listen to Unexplained. I'll put links in the show notes. Is there anything else you want to say before we go? Anything else you want to push or talk about to drive people to? Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I'm not really good at selling myself. So um, thank you for, for recommending the book. And yeah, come and check out Unexplained uh, wherever you get your podcasts, <laughs> as they say in the podcast world. Indeed. Well, Richard McLean-Smith, thank you very much for talking scared. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so this week the episode has gone long, really long, as in I had to edit out over 40 minutes of that conversation. Not to deprive you guys, but to keep things fluid and and easy to listen to and, and coherent because Richard and I went deep. I mean, give me the chance to talk about this kind of thing and you'll need a cattle prod or a restraining order to get to get rid of me. Uh-huh. We also went on a whole long thing about Midnight Mass, the TV show, which is currently all I'm talking about. Yeah, we spent about a good 15 minutes of, of red-hot spoiler talk on that. And it seemed neither conducive to a good episode, nor fair to those who haven't yet watched the show. I will be uploading some of that extra stuff to Patreon, where it can entertain you without muddying the conversational waters, so to speak. And and that's a good actual opportunity to mention Patreon now. We'll do it early. And to say that if you want loads of bonus content, like extra chat from my main guests, some entirely new exclusive Patreon guests, and some deep dives into various topics from me, you can sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod or via the link in the show notes. Every contribution is a marvellous thing, and it puts a huge smile on my face. 
But it's always nice to get that out of the way so I can talk to you about the episode you just heard. First of all, I can't recommend Unexplained enough. Obviously, this is your favourite podcast, we all know that, but I reckon Richard's could be a close second. There are nearly 200 episodes already, ranging across every kind of weird story, though not enough cryptids, as I said. Um, And at 30 minutes each, they're great for a short, concise listen. He has fantastic delivery. I mean, honestly, it was really weird hearing him talk to me because he sounds so ominous when he uses his show voice. The link to Unexplained is in the show notes, as well as to the, the Fountain Road files, but you can find both on all podcasting platforms. I am, of course, assuming that you, you are as into weird mysteries and unexplained events as I am, which is a lot. If not, and if the terms Mad Gasser of Mattoon and Flannan Isles Lighthouse and Yuba City 5, if all of that means nothing to you, then either you've already stopped listening or you're in for a treat, because... To Google with you. Check the wiki for this stuff and you'll lose hours. Skinwalker Ranch is the daddy of them all, though. That really is the greatest story on the internet. Closely followed by the Diatlov Pass. God, I'm, I'm, I'm too into this stuff. It's no wonder that girls never really talk to me at parties. Everyone else was kind of playing drinking games and stuff where I was manically and intensely trying to discuss Mothman in the kitchen. <laughs> Pity my poor wife. Anyway, if you do like this kind of stuff, let me know what you think about it, or tell me what your own favourite mysteries are. I know every week I say get in touch, this time I really mean it. I love this stuff. I'm always on the hunt for new legends, lore, unexplained phenomenon, Fortiana, that kind of stuff. Though it will take a lot for you to tell me one I don't already know. But there you go, challenge extended. In fact, actually, if you are into this kind of thing... Let me know if you would like me to do a Patreon episode about the best horror fiction based on real-life mysteries. It it might be quite a nice deep dive. You can, of course, get in touch in all the usual ways. Email at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, Instagram at talking underscore scared underscore pod, or easiest of all, Twitter at talkscaredpod. That is talkscared, not talkingscared on Twitter. So, it's been a long episode and I won't talk much more for now. Actually, next week will be quite long as well because Malaman is back in the house with his uber-epic Ghoul and the Cape. It's perhaps the book I have the most opinions on all year. It'll be quite tricky to get that one in under the hour mark. And then there's the Ghost Story special coming at Christmas with a pair of live recordings. And, and then the second State of the Horror Nation with Sadie Hartman and Emily Hughes. It's, it's hours and hours of horror chat. That sounds good, but I do know what it's like when a good podcast ruins itself by bloating. Now, I'm trying to keep this thing on rails with a clear and concise mission. And though I've got plans for the Talking Scared Empire to come... It's also early enough in this project that I can respond to every person who gets in touch. So, if you think I'm getting too long-winded, let me know. I know these outros are getting longer and longer every week. If you think I've gone off track, let me know. If you think it's still great and you are happy with these occasional shifts in focus, also let me know. Basically, reach out, because I'm always thrilled to hear from everyone. And if you can, obviously, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. But whilst we're on the subject, thinking of it, a big thanks to Ben Sweatman, 
who wrote me a lovely email about the show. He's still only on episode 20, so hopefully this will be a nice surprise if he keeps listening. Right though, now that little overture to the audience is done, I'll say see ya until next week, where you can get ready for Ghoul and the Cape. Until then, keep your mind open, keep your doors and windows locked, and keep the light on at night. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>